The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Welcome to What Catholics Believe. I am your host, Thomas Nagley, and with me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He is a member of the Society of St. Pius V. He's also the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you? Very fine, Tom. Thank you. How are you doing? Well, Father, thanks for asking. Father, I thought we could start tonight with a bit of news that Francis has made recently in regards to this ring-kissing fiasco. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's been all over the news today, I believe yesterday, some as well, where there is a video circulating of um, different religious and, and faithful lining up to kiss the ring of Francis, and he begins to pull his hand away as they try to kiss his papal ring. So, Father, what is your, what is your take on this? How do you interpret these actions of Francis? Well, in light of uh, the, the history of Francis and all that he's done, it certainly would be reasonable to interpret his action as a sign of uh, his disdain for any real, any real papal authority. Uh, the fisherman's ring is a symbol of that. Uh, the fisher, remember the, there was a movie with Anthony Quinn called The Ring of the Fisherman. Remember that? Uh, that was before you were born, probably, <laughs> okay. I imagine. Probably. Uh, Anthony Quinn, actor, The Ring of the Fisherman, and the theme of the movie was that uh, a liberal pontiff got into the Vatican and began to liquidate all of the artworks and precious things uh, for the sake of feeding the poor, see, around the world. So it seems almost prophetic, considering Francis's own socialistic uh, mentality. Um, but uh, in any case, um, the Ring of the Fisherman has a certain symbolism, and it has been used to seal the documents uh, of popes to um, uh, kind of bind up the document to show that, that it really is issued an authoritative of a reigning pontiff. Huh? The ring of the pontiff is unique to himself, and after his death, it is destroyed. Um, you know, it's a matter of expediency, because not only is the ring destroyed because the pontiff has died, it's not only symbolic, but it would prevent anyone from abusing it after his death to try to fabricate some kind of false document. So that, the ring is destroyed uh, traditionally for that purpose, to make sure nothing is falsified. But uh, the ring symbolizing the authority of the fishermen, that's St. Peter, of course, it refers to St. Peter's authority. And what they like now to refer as the Petrine ministry, right? Uh, a true pope is the successor, not of Christ, but the successor of St. Peter, right? The first vicar of Christ here on earth. And it is that authority that is represented by the uh, by the fisherman's ring. So, um, 
Francis has shown such disdain and disregard for the traditional authority of the popes, such the traditional authority of the papacy itself, that it does not seem out of place for him to be literally jerking it away from people who go to kiss it. Um, the church also grants uh, certain benefits. One could even find um, indulgences granted for that practice of kissing the ring of a, of a bishop or a, uh, an ordinary, let's say, a bishop, and of a pope, and uh, showing that reverence to the authority of the church the church's hierarchy. But um, I understand that uh, uh, both Francis and Benedict, and I understand John Paul II actually before them, began to uh, try to stop the people from kissing the ring. And uh, kissing, even kissing the hand. You know? uh, John Paul II, I think, was the one who tried at first to stop tried to stop the faithful from kissing his hand, which is a very common practice with kissing the hands of the priest because they are consecrated when the priest is ordained, and they touch the body of Christ. But nowadays, in the Novus Ordo, that doesn't mean anything anyway because they're handing the host the wafer out to everybody. And um, so there's no special significance to the, the anointing of the priest's hands to touch the body of Christ in the Novus Ordo. Um, so, it, I guess it makes sense that after the Novus Ordo liturgy came out, um, and the practice of hand communion, that they would just decide that the kissing of the priest's hands had no particular significance. And um, it would work its way all the way up to the supreme pontiff of the new order. Um, now, I understand that Francis does allow people to kiss his hand at times. Um, he seems very reluctant to allow them to kiss the ring. The BBC reported on this, I understand, that he did this as an expedient to try to uh, speed up the line that was coming to him. But actually, if one saw the video, I think one would realize that it had just the opposite effect when he yes. jerked his hand away when people went to kiss his ring and he jerked the ring away from their lips, even as they were, you know, ready to kiss the ring as they were bowed over and they were right there. He jerked the, the, the ring away. And there was a moment's hesitation for the people was to say, well, what, what happened? Why are you doing that? Even the, the young priest, Pali Monsignor, was standing to Francis's left, visible, by the way, in the video, I looked over and had a, kind of a smile on his face as though he thought it was kind of curious. And then one sees his, his face drop as though, what in the world is happening here? Why, why are you doing this? You know, he looked puzzled and uh, troubled by it even. But uh, Francis's jerky action to keep pulling the ring away was so pronounced. I mean, the press worldwide uh, commented on it. And they, they took to showing the video, not just reporting on it, but showing the video just to show people how bizarre this really was, because you couldn't really convey it just by describing it. People would have to see it to really understand. Well, he has shown, as I said, such a contempt for the authority of the real Catholic papacy that, um, yeah, I could see the fisherman's ring is not something that he would necessarily want venerated 
but he has so often defiled it himself. And Father, this seems to be a theme in the Novus Ordo. We, we have it on good authority that, that Francis does this often, that he, he often does not allow persons to kiss his ring and sometimes even his hand. And I remember the story of a, uh, of a Catholic who attempted to kiss the ring of a Novus Ordo bishop, and he did a, a similar thing, pulled it away, kind of looked at them in disgust and said, don't you dare kiss my ring mm-hmm. as if the, the ring belonged to him, you know, not, not right. the Right, my ring. It's not what it signifies. Right. It's his ring. Right. But it, it's, so it's a piece of jewelry he wears. And this, this seems to be a, a theme in the Novus Ordo, just this total disrespect for, uh, for sacred things like this and just this total worldly, this worldly view of things rather than a true supernatural view of things. This is the new world order we're looking at here. I think so. And it, 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 I couldn't help um, but, but remember reading about Father when President Kennedy went to, uh, went to Rome to visit Paul VI and there was a big deal made of if he would kiss the papal ring or not as he was over there because there was so much so much talk about him um you know being a puppet of rome a puppet of, of the pope and so when he went over there there you know all eyes were on him to see if he would kiss this ring or not and they ended up just doing the famous solemn handshake <coughs> they called it and so oh. you know they have this um here it is on a, on a grand world stage this supposedly Catholic leader mm-hmm. with the perfect perfect opportunity to show this respect to a supposed Catholic Pope. And, mm-hmm. and this is this is what you get, just a, a solemn handshake rather than this, taking advantage of this opportunity. So it's right, going to just right. be a, a common theme of just disrespect. Right, right. It is. No doubt about it. You know, a bishop wears a ring too, symbolizing his authority, right? And uh, the, the stone in the bishop's ring is an amethyst. And literally, uh, amethyst means not drunk. It comes from the Greek words, being not drunk. And it recalls St. Paul's words to Timothy and Titus that a bishop must have certain qualities, and one of those is that he must not be given to, to wine drinking excessively. To wine, he can drink wine, but he must not be given to be, as a wine bibber, you might say. Like, he must be sober. Be sober. That's a word he uses. Be sober. Amitos. Be not drunk. But these these people are drunk with the world. They really are drunk drunkards of the world. That's what they care about. That's what they talk about. That's all that really matters to them. And uh, it goes right to the top, right to Francis, because that's all they talk about is this world and making this world a nice place. Um, the idea of saving souls, though... You don't find that as a theme in their writings or in their thinking either. Right. So um, it's uh, it's it's symbolic and it's very obvious in the way they conduct themselves. You know what what is in their minds and their hearts is manifested by the way they conduct themselves outwardly, and uh, that is not a edifying for the Catholic people. Uh, and well. Not for real Catholic people, <laughs> let's put it that way. Some might, you know, there are probably some who say, oh, look at, look at him. He's so humble. You know, his humbleness will not let them kiss his ring because he's too humble to allow them to show this homage and this reverence. But, you know, again, they miss the point. It's not about him. It's not about Francis. Well, it shouldn't be anyway. Uh, it's it's about the office that he supposedly holds, the office that he represents, right? It's about the authority of that office. 
and it's about the the symbols that that represent that authority in that office. But uh, with the Novus Ordo hierarchy going right through to Francis, and perhaps the prime example, Exhibit A, is Francis. It really is always all about him. <clears throat> no matter what he's doing, it's all about him. Right. And uh, again, this is this is the Novus Ordo. Right? This is what the New Order is all about. Yes, Father. Well, let's try and get into some emails. Father, if you could, we have a question here from a viewer who asks if you know any traditional priests who offer the 30 Gregorian Masses for the deceased. I do. Who might that be? Well, Father Greenwell, for one. Huh? Uh, he's just finished a Gregorian. And I happen to know another, who I'm very, very close to, myself. Uh, actually, I'm in the middle of a Gregorian Mass for uh, 30 Conducative Masses for my Aunt Margaret. Um, and there are various other priests I know who have offered Gregorian masses, but uh, it's very difficult. It is very difficult for a priest to offer the 30 consecutive masses. That's the mass on 30 consecutive days, actually, um, because of the obligations we have and so many mass intentions that we receive. <clears throat> I have to wait a while for a clearing in my schedule of mass intentions to even allow this to happen. And I've actually been contacting, well, tried to be in contact with other priests and ask if they can accept Gregorian masses, because even now I know of a number of people who are, uh, are asking for Gregorian masses for their loved ones. And, um, the, you know, the, the, the trouble is, if I have a mass intention that I receive, um, you know, on a certain date, I can't be continually postponing that intention in order to give priority to 30-day Gregorian Masses when there are so relatively few traditional priests relative, that is, to the number of Mass intentions requested, right? So, um, uh, you know, I don't think it is right, and I'm sure the other priests don't think it's right to keep postponing intentions that were given to us maybe a month, two months, three months, four months ago because we are simply focusing on the intentions coming now because somebody wants to have masses for 30 consecutive days. And this is the problem we have. So I, you know, there, there's, there are priests I know who are really traditional priests, priests of the Congregation of St. Pius V, priests of the Society of St. Pius V. And uh, I, I will ask them if they have any possibility of, of offering a Gregorian masses. But, um, um, there's no guarantee that they do because of the number of mass intentions that they receive. Okay. Next question. Father, this viewer says, I often watch the videos you have posted online of past Roman Catholic forums. Can you give a little history of what these were, whether they still happen today, and if not, what would be needed to make something like this available to the faithful again? This viewer says, I would certainly be interested in helping facilitate this if possible. Well, that would be wonderful. We need people who facilitate things like that, that's for sure. Well, we had in Cleveland a particularly active group of gentlemen who uh, would get together under the leadership either of myself or of Father Greenwell and uh, would organize the Roman Catholic forums. Don Julius was a great organizer of this. Uh, for example, God rest his soul, a great man. Yes, sir. And um, so they would, uh, he and 
others would line up a, a, a list of speakers who were very prominent speakers and um, of great interest to traditional Catholics to hear. And uh, they would come to Cleveland on a certain couple of days over a weekend and give a series of talks. And uh, we'd have people coming from California, Texas, Florida. People would fly in from around the country uh, to hear these talks. And I must say, I think they were at a very high level. I think they were very well done. Uh, except for a certain gray-haired priest. Well, he wasn't so gray at the time, but he wasn't so... Well, he was a lot thinner at the time, too. <clears throat> but you might see his videos. But I, I'm talking about the programs that others gave, like Dr. John Jackson, for example, and, and other... Uh, Charles Rice, and so on, he gave some really, really good talks. <clears throat> and uh, people always left there uh, happy that they'd come, as far as I could see. We'd have a dinner, a formal dinner in the evening, and then uh, get the, the keynote speaker. And uh, people had the traditional mass offered at St. Teresa, the Child Jesus Church, for them on the Saturday and the Sunday. Um, and this annual Roman Catholic Forum was an event, okay? And it, it kind of fell by the wayside after the death of some key figures who would organize us. And also uh, the priests involved got really busy with many other things going on. And I don't think the intention was to terminate it one year we missed, but the fact is we did miss the one year and it was never revived. Well, I'd like to see it revived. I've often thought it would be nice to bring that back because there's so much happening right now that this would be a very good thing to bring put back in place. Even here at our Immaculate Conception Church School, it'd be a great place to host something like this. We have the facilities necessary to do it. Mm -hmm. So um, I'd, I'd really like to see that resume, but we'd need uh, some really exceptionally bright, devout, Gifted people like yourself, Tom, oh, <laughs> to uh, spearhead the project. So uh, we'll, we'll, you know, I'll ask for for a secret ballot at, at the end of the show. <laughs> Sounds good. But we'll anyway, see what we can do. yeah, maybe we can make it happen. Sure. I'll tell you what, though, <clears throat> um, you can't discount the ladies either. You happen to know a wonderful lady named Hannah, right. who's got tremendous talent. <laughs> And it's Tom's wife, of course. She's really pretty, too. Uh, and, and smart, right? And uh, I mean, it tells me what a very bright individual you are that you married her, okay? And, uh, Smartest thing I ever did. But I, I believe that also the women's involvement is, is crucial to, to make this happen again, to bring this back, um, use their talents to, um, to, to bring back the... The Roman Catholic Forum um, at all levels, um, even I mean, right down to the dinner. The um, if we're having it in our facilities and not a rented like a hotel facility, we would have to provide the dinner for them. Mm -hmm. And we have some excellent cooks, as you know. <clears throat> but also the decorating and and doing all of the like the mailings, the contacting, the registering, all of those things. Um, just women seem to be so gifted in keeping track <laughs> of all that. You know, uh, so to enlist their help would be a very important aspect of bringing back the Roman Catholic forums. Mm -hmm. And Father, speaking of beneficial events like this, we have the ladies and the men's retreat coming up very soon here at our facilities. Mm -hmm. 
in Cincinnati. So could you could you talk about those for a minute, Father? Why why do we have these retreats and why are they so important? Well, our Lord Himself gave us the example of you know just leaving the world behind, as it were, and going up into the mountains to pray alone. Right? Uh, we often see our Lord there, you know, uh, going even by night off to pray alone. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he went, right? Took three apostles, went further into the garden, and then left them and went further into the garden. We see our Lord on retreat. We see him going out into the desert to fast. We just talked about that, showing that the Holy Ghost led our Lord into the desert in <clears throat> to be tempted by the devil. I mean, that's how Lent begins with that word. <clears throat> but our Lord was, in a sense, on retreat there. So this is the example we've been given, and all of the <clears throat> great souls uh, throughout life, our Catholic history have uh, talked about the necessity of withdrawing from the things of the world, and not just intentionally, not just trying to keep our minds free from attachment to these things, but even physically, bodily, I mean, going off and going on retreat and getting away from the things of the world that are so distracting. And uh, we find that that is a great aid for spiritual progress, right? Um, especially in our own day, by the way, where it's so necessary to get away from the clamor and the clatter of the world and to focus on the things that really matter, the soul. As our Lord said, what doth it profit a man to gain the whole world and suffer the loss of his own soul? And if there's anything that's, that speaks of the necessity of a retreat, I think that says it right there. Mm -hmm. So um, I do encourage the men and the women to take advantage, if they have a retreat they can get to, uh, such as the retreat here, to take the effort, make the effort to get there. It's not a long retreat, just uh, about three days. Uh, a lot of working people uh, and people with little children at home can't really get away for a lot more than that. To make a full Ignatian retreat of a full month is pretty much impossible for the vast majority of the Catholic people now. A week's retreat also takes a lot of planning and so on. But this three-day retreat, you know, can be done without an enormous amount of planning and makes it much more available to more people, I think. Okay. But much more possible to do. I'm the retreat master this, this uh, coming time. Father Greenwell and I alternate. And we have the retreat out at the St. Thomas Aquinas campgrounds, but it's actually a retreat center as much as it is a campground. And we have a cabins there, and we have the retreat conference room, and we have the chapel there, which is very nice, and with the Blessed Sacrament present. But the grounds are very beautiful. People like to walk the grounds, uh, almost 60 acres they can walk. And it's very well manicured for the retreat, and the pond is there uh, for them to enjoy, with the fountain even lit by night. So it's, it's, a, it's a very pleasant place. Um, for for a retreat. So I encourage people to, to come there. What do we talk about? Well, we talk about, obviously, the things that have to do with the salvation of our souls and uh, how we can pray better, right? With a, a more digne attente ac devote, more worthily and attentively and devoutly. We talk about the, the importance of prayer and how to pray. But uh, also some of the key virtues that we as Catholics need to cultivate, but some of the hardest virtues too. 
What are the obstacles, the greatest obstacles we face to our salvation? What are the greatest obstacles we face to our spiritual progress? And why are these things so daunting that we have a hard time getting past them? And how do we? How can we make our way uh, over these hurdles, as it were, and, and make real spiritual progress? All of these things uh, are uh, the, you know, involved in the conferences. Of course, we talk about the examples of our Blessed Mother and the saints and what they can teach us in their lives. So um, I, I think uh, the brochure we have on the retreats, which we would gladly send to anybody who made a request and gave us an address to mail to, um, the brochure pretty much says it all. You look at the pictures, you can see the campgrounds, you see the chapel. Um, you can also see um, comments that others who've made the retreat in the past have made. And we don't cherry pick and say, oh, I've got three people who said this was a terrible retreat, and one who said, oh, I loved it, you know, discard the rest. No, actually, the, the comments there are genuine and they're representative of uh, the thoughts of people who made the retreat. And um, one, well, they speak for themselves, I think. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And Father, another example from Scripture of a retreat I thought would be the time between Our Lord's Ascension and Our Lord sending the Holy Ghost. And That's right. I was, thought it was a very beautiful thought to imagine the Blessed Mother essentially being the retreat master of mm -hmm. the apostles and, and the disciples during that time. Mm -hmm. and, during during those days, yeah. That's right. But, um, you know, Father, we always very frequently come into contact with viewers who live some distance away from a traditional Mass, and, and we, we talk about this idea of making some kind of road trip, some kind of trip, even if it's once a month or mm. whatever it may be. But this seems, the retreat seems to be the perfect idea, the perfect time to make that happen. If one is going mm. to take a, make some kind of a, a weekend, a short weekend trip, this mm. would be the time to do it. There's there's daily Mass, mm. uh, there, there's rosary and benediction and conferences and, and prayer and spiritual reading and all of these wonderful things happening during this time. Mm. So if one were to pick any weekend of the year sure. to, to have a, a getaway, for, this would be the best possible Well, time. we're talking mid to late June mm -hmm. uh, for the women's retreat, which comes first, and then the men's retreat. And um, Cincinnati is a very easy place to get to. Uh, fairly centrally located, at least to the east. And uh, the airport is pretty accommodating. So... Um, Airfares can be a little stiff, but we have some airlines that come in with, uh, which are fairly bargain basement. Um, and so it's very affordable for those who, you know, book in advance. So it is a really good opportunity. We have people who drive in, um, you know, a few hundred miles to make the retreats. We have people who drive in even from New York and, well, from Cleveland, of course, which is about a four hour, three and a half hour drive from us. But we have others coming in from different directions as well. So uh, people have always complimented the food. They thought the, uh, <laughs> the fare was good. Um, so um, I, I just hope that uh, people will take advantage of the opportunity they have. Because I've never known anyone to regret, regret having come. No. But I, I've known people who regret not having come. and wish they could have mm -hmm. if circumstances had permitted it. So, sure. Father, final topic perhaps for tonight's program. We, we've had this question for some time, and it seems to be a bit of a recurring theme on the show. Um, so in a recent program, you remarked that we know there will be a conversion of the Jews at the end times, and they will, in fact, be leading the resistance to the Antichrist. 
So this viewer says that they've never heard this teaching. So they are asking, Father, where did you get this idea from? Is this based on anything from Scripture, or, or what are your, your sources for this, this idea? Well, St. Paul talks about the conversion of the Jewish people at the end time. St. Paul talks about the conversion of his own Hebrew people. What does he say? <clears throat> uh, he says, well, just that. He said that there will be a conversion uh, of the, the Jews. Not, does that mean all of the Jews in the world are going to convert? No, not necessarily. Um, but there will be a large conversion of Jews. And uh, we find that in the book of the Apocalypse, or what some call the book of Revelation, but actually all the books of the Bible are books of Revelation. So, But uh, the Apocalypse having to do with the hidden things, you know, the future, that's what the word means, um, it talks about that. Eh? I mean, all you have to do is go to the epistle, which is actually from the book of the Apocalypse, not an epistle as such, for the uh, Feast of All Saints Day. It's read in All Saints Day, and it's read throughout the octave of All Saints, about God commanding that the angels who are about to strike the earth and the sea and the trees wait. God is going to strike the earth and the sea and the trees, he said, okay? <clears throat> And they have to wait until an angel comes and marks on their foreheads with the sign of the Son of Man those who are going to be sealed, as it were, for the end times. And this, this sealing, as it were, with the mark on the forehead is what comes in the book of the Apocalypse immediately before the trumpets sound, and the, the, the beast and the Antichrist appear, and all the rest. So it's rather clear that they are being set aside for something very important, an important mission. And who are they? <clears throat> 144,000 signed of the tribes of Israel. Remember that? Yes. 144,000 signed from the tribes of Israel. 12,000 signed from the various tribes of Gad, Issachar, Benjamin, uh, Judah, and so on. The only tribe that is not represented is the tribe of Dan. For some reason, that seems to have disappeared from the list. <clears throat> but, uh, you know, Isaac, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob had 13 sons. <clears throat> and these 12 tribes of Israel are basically named after the 12 of those sons, and there are 12,000 people signed from each one of those tribes. Now, the sign of the Son of Man is our Lord Jesus. That's our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the Savior. That's the Redeemer. And so there's a very clear understanding here that these Jewish people are going to accept Christ. They're going to be Christians. They're going to be Catholics. We know that. They're going to be signed with the cross. We can take that as the... It doesn't specify that this is the sign, but I think it is very reasonable to understand that uh, as baptism. <clears throat> and uh, they will actually um, form the, as it were, backbone of the resistance to the Antichrist. <clears throat> um, there will be two great uh, patriarchs who will be risen, who will be sent uh, Again, you know, you read the fathers of the church and their prophecy, and they talk about Henoch and Elias, okay? Elias, the great prophet, 
prophet and Henoch, the patriarch, that they will actually be the two witnesses who will lead the resistance to the Antichrist. <clears throat> and the Antichrist will slay them and leave their bodies in the streets for four days as trophies of his final victory against all resistance. And then they will rise. They will rise from the dead. Now you look back in the, in the sacred uh, scripture and you find that Henoch was taken by God. And Elias also was taken by God in a fiery chariot. They did not stay here to die. <clears throat> and the uh, traditional Catholic teaching has never been defined by the church. But they are being held by God. Some say actually held in the Garden of Eden where they are sustained by the fruit of uh, the tree of life, okay? And um, that they will, in fact, return, and they will be the ones who will lead the resistance to the Antichrist, with the, especially with the zeal of the, the converted Jews. You know, this all seems very, not only, um, as they say in French, vraisemblable. I don't pronounce that very well right now, I'm sorry. But it not only seems very, uh, you know, ring, rings of truth, as it were, you see it there in sacred scripture, but you also see the parallels. I mean, the 12 apostles, Judas having fallen away, Matthias having taken his place, the 12 apostles being sent up by our Lord. And now we're talking about 12,000 for each one of those apostles of the various tribes of Israel being... Um, called by God, by grace, to faith in Christ and uh, to uh, confront this monster, the Antichrist. It, uh, it really will be apocalyptic. You know? But one can go into sacred scripture and one can find this. I mean, go to, go to the Acts of the Apostles, go to the book of the Apocalypse, chapter 7, and read there. And then keep reading, too. <clears throat> you find this. Uh, reading, this first reading from the uh, book of the Apocalypse, chapter 7, in the uh, Mass for the Feast of All Saints Day and throughout the octave. And there are those false religions, okay, pseudo-Christianities, that have misinterpreted this. For example, one false uh, pseudo-Christian sect has decided that 144,000 and only 144,000 will actually enter heaven. And the rest of the just will just have to stay here on earth and enjoy earth, right? And again, this is, this is the, the tragedy of Martin Luther's teaching of private interpretation because people come up with all kinds of really bizarre and manifestly false teachings. And yet they deceive people with this. I mean, if you read the book of the Apocalypse, chapter 7, it states about those on earth who are being signed before the striking of the earth by the angels right? and um, the 144,000. But then, after speaking of them, the, uh, the chapter 7 shifts to heaven where it says that then I saw a multitude which was so great no man could number, not 144,000, of every tribe and nation and people and tongue before the throne of God in heaven. Total opposite of what this false Christian sect says about only 144,000 being saved. <clears throat> it's amazing they could get away with this false teaching and deceive people. No wonder they had to rewrite the scriptures to support what they're te teaching because the true scriptures contradict flatly what they're teaching, right? 
But um, as I say, after that chapter seven, then you begin into the reading of the sounding of the trumpets and the summoning of the last days, as it were, the opening of the pit of hell, right? <clears throat> the beast and all the rest, the apocalyptic things going to take place on earth. So uh, one can read that for himself or herself, and I recommend that they do so. And Father, another objection to this idea of the 144,000 sign that you're, that you're talking about. One of our, our viewers emailed this in where they said that this 144,000 is not actually those living on earth. This is all of the Jews throughout all of time, that their total number will be 144,000 of each, 12,000 of each tribe saved. But this seems to be patently false based on what you're saying. Of well, read the text. I mean, it, you know, that makes no sense in light of what the text actually says, right? They are on earth at that time, and that's where they're you're right, Tom. It doesn't make sense. You know, somebody wrote us a while ago uh, objecting to the statement of Our Lady at Fatima. Right. Our Lady at Fatima said that one of the consequences of failing to stop sinning, failing to pray the rosary, failing to consecrate ourselves to her Immaculate Heart, and so on, failing to consecrate Russia to her Immaculate Heart by the Supreme Pontiff, one of the consequences would be that Russia would spread her errors throughout the world if Our Lady's requests were not met. Our Lady's requests were not met. So we see Russia has spread her errors throughout the world, Marxism, atheism, and so on. But someone wrote in to say, that's not what Our Lady said at Fatima. Despite what everybody says Our Lady says at Fatima, this writer says <clears throat> what Our Lady actually said at Fatima is the Jews will spread their errors throughout the world, not Russia. <clears throat> Okay. Well, uh, my first reaction was, where is she getting, or he, getting this, you know? Uh, because all of the accounts, going back to the very beginning, from the very earliest days after Fatima, cite Our Lady's words, when, when Lucia was able to speak them and was able to reveal them, that is, going back into the uh, 1940s, early 40s, even even before that, uh, have to do with Russia spreading her errors out the world. But then I thought, well, you know, that's an interesting point. Even if Our Lady did not say the Jews will spread their errors out the world, but as is commonly understood that Our Lady said Russia will spread her errors out the world, Father Dennis Fahey pointed out that the Russian Revolution was actually a Jewish revolution in Russia. The Bolshevik Revolution was led by Jews. <clears throat> and uh, Trotsky, Brownstein, I think his name was, Brownstein, uh, and so many others, leaders of the revolution, of the Bolshevik revolution in Russia were Jewish people. And the Jews really took over. And it is a fact that the, the Jews, for some reason, historically seem to have a tendency towards socialism. They seem to gravitate in that direction. Of course, communism... There's nothing but socialism with a cherry on top. That's all it is. It's just it's just out and out socialism. Government, bureaucratic, pol political control of all the means of production and the means of living. The means of, of, of like this all-powerful government that controls everything people need to live on. Right. Why would the Jewish people, at least those of means and with power and wealth, all seem to gravitate in that direction? I don't know. It's... it's uh, 
I guess the rejection of Christ has left them prey to this mythology of government now being God. I guess. Or the people, or maybe the idea of the Jewish people rising in power and taking political power and having the right of preeminence according to the, uh, to the Kabbal, the, Z- the Zohar, and you know the whole Kabbalistic idea of the Jew being like the perfect man, Adam Kadosh, and therefore having the right to rule all mankind. But they always seem to, at least those of means and power and, and wealth, seem to gravitate toward this, this socialistic idea where everything is regimented, everything is controlled by some central government authority, which for all practical purposes is like the earthly idol God, you know, to, to, the, to mankind. Because they just do away with the real God. You know? They dispense with him. So, in a sense, what the lady writes may not literally be correct, but it may well be, as it were, morally correct, that the ideas brought in to Russia through the Bolshevik Revolution really were Jewish ideas, and that's what materialized in, in Russian Bolshevism, okay? Now, it's kind of interesting to note the history of that, because if you look at the earliest, uh, the, the list of the earliest rulers of communist Russia, you have Jew, the, the Jews are absolutely predominant, that they are in power as Bolshevists in Russia. But uh, when Stalin took over from Lenin and consolidated his power, he began to liquidate the Jews. And this is something we see again. There's kind of a fatalism here where they help bring people to power who then turn on them and then, and then liquidate them because they find them a threat, an intolerable threat to their own, their own power and control. Um, this is a very, very sad story. It's a tragic story, you know. No wonder when our Lord was on the Mount of Olives and he looked down in the city of Jerusalem, he wept for such Terrible grief. He wept. He wept for the people. His own people, whom he really loved, truly. It's so sad to see that happening. But then, you know, we do have the idea that at the end, as St. Paul says, and also, as you read in the book of the Apocalypse, this conversion, and it's easy to see why God would chose this, choose this people to to be the, 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 as it were, immovable ob- object uh, and, and perhaps at the same time the irresistible force against the Antichrist. He, the Antichrist will style himself to be the irresistible force, but they will be so ardent in their faith and their hope and their love for God that nothing will break them. Right? They will be absolutely the most formidable opposition, the converted Jews to Christ, will be the most generous and selfless opposition to the Antichrist. And then you have the words of St. Uh, uh, Louis uh, de Grignon, uh, Grignon de Montfort, right? St. Louis de Montfort says that the saints of the last times will be, will be so much greater than the saints, the martyrs of the early days, that they, the saints of the last times, will be like the cedars of Lebanon compared to shrubs, right? You've heard that statement, right? 
And I can't help but think that these are the ones who are called to be those saints. Hard to, hard to imagine, but you know, there's reason to believe that is true in, in Catholic teaching. So, anyway, um, <clears throat> Christ will will triumph. It's mm-hmm. good. It's good. Well, Father, we can end with that. But um, in closing, really quickly, we're around the halfway point of the the Lenten season. So, do you have any words of encouragement for Catholics to finish out this last half half of Lent? Yes, don't be faint of heart, okay? Uh, we have a, a Laetare Sunday coming up here in a few days. And uh, you'll notice that there are priests who will actually wear the rose-colored vestments, uh, which the church tolerates. <laughs> um, but violet is the color of Lent, actually. So, uh, But the reason why the church tolerates the rose-colored vestments is to show we are halfway through the season of Lent. And uh, I would just say with regard to the Lenten fast, if you're obliged to fast, or if you're fasting, even if you're not obliged, but many people do, uh, then if you're not hungry, you're not fasting. Okay, some people ask, well, how do I organize my meals properly so that I can have one main meal with meat and then two smaller meals that together don't add up to the quantity of the main meal? And sometimes people find it... (laughs) Uh, just awkward to try to, you know, measure out what they've got, and they're uncertain. And I would just say, look, if you're if you're not hungry by the time you get to the next time to eat, you're not fasting. So there should there should be some real experience of hunger during Lent to show that there is genuine fasting going on. <clears throat> uh, people often also offer things up. We ask the children to make little offerings. Um, and that's a very good thing. I mean, those who are not obliged to fast can be asked to offer up something that is unnecessary to them. You can offer up dessert, right? Or um, <clears throat> it can be something positive, like making extra efforts at their homework and to be helpful around the house or whatever it is. But um, the um, most important thing to do in Lent, though, is to follow our Lord more closely. And um, so we need to do the spiritual reading during Lent, which always gives us insight into the mind and heart of our Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, the saints' writings, their examples, they always lead us forward um, to appreciate our Lord more, to want to not be like Peter, who the night our Lord was taken in Gethsemane followed at a distance, a safe distance, but to be wanting to go closer, like John, the apostle. And um, the um, the importance of, of Lent, well, I mean, if you knew this was the last Lent of your life, it would take on a certain significance to you that otherwise we don't have, because... We take these things for granted. You know, we think, oh, yeah, this is one, just one Lent of many in my life. But if we just saw this as a great opportunity that God allowed us to live to this, to see this Lent, and we took it uh, as a great gift from him and a great opportunity to make spiritual progress, uh, then we would take it more seriously and not just take it for granted. So, um, 
One of the things we're always asked to do in the spiritual life is examine our consciences to know what our predominant fault is. And the whole concept of the predominant fault is something we could probably talk about sometime. But it is the single greatest obstacle we have to living in the state of grace and dying in the state of grace, okay? And it might not of itself be a mortal sin. It might be the, the laziness that prevents us from doing the things we need to do to have the graces and strength to resist the temptations to mortal sin. So it might be something, uh, it might not be the mortal sin itself, but what makes us pray to the mortal sin. I mean, that's what Father Gary Goulagrange said, that his, in his estimation, and he knew, uh, he knew what he was talking about, <clears throat> Well, Our Lady says that the sin of impurity is the single greatest cause for the damnation of most souls in the world. That in his estimation, the single greatest cause of the damnation of the souls of Catholics is just plain sloth, laziness. Because they have what they, all the means they need in order to be strong enough to live in the state of grace, and they're just too lazy to bother with them. What a tragedy that is, huh? What a tragedy. So uh, I would say that this is something we have to do. We have to throw off the torpor that plagues us, the laziness, the complacency of taking our souls for granted. And we have to, uh, you know, rise up, as St. Paul says, fight the good fight, run the race, and uh, be serious about the matter of saving our souls, which means be serious about the matter of knowing and loving and serving our Lord. So that's probably saying a little more than you had hoped for, but that's anyway, right. um, giving a little sermon there. That's all right. But anyway, uh, Tom, I really appreciate you doing the programs. I know it takes time and effort. Mm -hmm. And uh, do your little children see you? Do they watch the show? Oh, yes, Father. Well, they see Dad there. Yes, Father. They're Me impressed. Too. Right? Yes, Father. Yeah, good. Yes, Father. Well, they should be. Yep. They should be. Yep, yep. Uh, they're wonderful children. Thank you. Well, Father, thanks for being here tonight. Appreciate your time. God bless you. Thank you, Tom. God bless you, too. Yeah. Thanks to all and of our... God bless all of our listeners, too. There you go. Thanks to all of our viewers for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you, and God bless you. <laughs>